everyone. Uh, if you would, please turn with me to John chapter 19. And if there's any parents taking kids out to Gospel Project, now is the time. Um, we together have been working our way through the Gospel of John, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life in the Bible. Today, we uh, come to what John's been building to the whole time. We will find Jesus uh, traveling to, being placed upon, and then dying on a cross. Next week, uh, we will take the morning to consider what is often just breezed past quickly, and that's the way in which Jesus was taken off the cross. And then, Lord willing, two weeks from now, we'll consider together his actual burial. So this is slowing the pace that we've been going at. Uh, We're slowing down to take three weeks for the rest of John 19, because this is really the, the most important moment. Everything in the Bible up to this point has been building to this moment. And everything after this is just an outworking of what happens at the cross. This is the most crucial moment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all devote enormous amounts of material to Jesus' final 24 hours, and especially to his death on the cross. Before we read the text together this morning, I thought it might be helpful to simply ask this question. Did the cross actually happen? There are very likely people in the room this morning that have legitimate questions about that. Did it actually happen? Well, I'm glad you asked. thought we could take a couple of minutes together to consider that. If I had the opportunity to sit with you one-on-one over a cup of coffee and you were to ask me, did the cross actually happen? And we weren't allowed, first of all, to use the Bible. Then there's a couple streams of thought that we could jump into, if you would. Um, One would be that we could consider together how all the other theories about what happened in the mid-30s A.D. in the city of Jerusalem are really rather silly when compared with the biblical account. In other words, so sure is the historicity of what the Gospels tell us that There are other theories about what actually happened at the cross to try and explain away its significance. One of those is that uh, Jesus was carrying his cross and then traded bodies with someone else, and that someone else actually died on the cross, not Jesus. I think that takes more faith to believe that than actually what the Scriptures say. So one thing we could just do is look at the other theories together and consider their likelihood compared with the biblical account. Uh, Second thing that we might want to do together is simply use logic. Regular, good old-fashioned brain power. You tap into that every now and then, right? So this is simply asking questions about what is most likely. So we could ask, what, what is most likely given the account of what the disciples were like prior to this and the account of what they're like later. Or maybe even more specifically, 
How do you explain the explosive growth of the early church if the cross didn't happen? We could simply use logical, deductive reasoning to try and get at, did the cross happen? If we still had not reached the point of seeing eye to eye, I might be feeling rather feisty at this point. And so I might be a little more combative or direct. And so I think the last thing I'd want to do is to try and work at with you seeing that it takes a bias against Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to discredit them if you accept anything else that comes from secular history. So, in other words, if you think we can know anything that happened around the turn of the century, the turn of the first century, then you can be confident that the cross happened because we have not one, not two, not three, but four witnesses telling us it happened. And nothing else in history about anything from the same time period has that kind of historical witness. And so really you have to come at the Bible with a bias against it in order to set it aside. And so did the cross happen? Well, that's at least three things we could consider without actually opening the Bible and reading what it says. But all of this really comes down to this question. Do you take the Bible to be God's Word? It doesn't matter, honestly, how much logical, deductive reasoning or how many other people refer to the cross or uh, whether the theories out there that are not biblical actually hold water. Ultimately, the question is, does the Bible speak God's Word? If so, then he should be taken at his word, and he is trustworthy. But don't misunderstand me. There is strong supporting evidence that the cross did happen. In fact, if we, again, didn't open the Scriptures but just said, well, is there anybody else outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that refer to Jesus dying on the cross? Do you understand the question? Now, I recognize that 90% of you have checked out by this point. But those 10%, I want to talk to you for a moment. Uh, because this is a huge, huge, huge issue. And by the way, the other 90, you have friends that are in that 10%. So it would be good to learn some of this. Is there anybody else around the same time period that referred to Jesus? That weren't speaking with a religious claim? but we're simply speaking Jewish, history, Jewish or Roman history. Yes, there were. You're on pins and needles, aren't you? There are two. There are two historical witnesses that say Jesus died on a cross who were not Christians. There's more than that. There's another, there's a third guy. But let me just show you two. There are... Uh, three, but we'll take time to consider two. First one is a guy named Josephus. The second is a guy named Tacitus. Let's go in order chronologically. The first is Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish general. He served in the army. And eventually he defected and he became a historian that lived 
as part of Rome, but wrote about his people, the Jewish people. Most everything we know about the ancient history of the Jews outside of the Bible comes from Josephus. Josephus was born in Jerusalem four years after Jesus died. And he wrote a book called The Antiquities of the Jews. Now, I recognize some of you started your morning coffee reading Antiquities, but for the rest of us, let me read you a quote from Josephus. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it's lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of principled men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. And the tribe of Christians, I love that. The tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. Flavius Josephus. What a great first name. Josephus wrote those words in around 94 AD. Josephus, a Jewish historian claiming not to write Christianity, claiming not to speak on behalf of Jesus, say Jesus died on a cross. A second example would be Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman. He was also not a believer. Almost everything you ever learned about Roman history, you learned from Tacitus. Tacitus, in his um, annals, wrote in 116, so 116 AD, he wrote to explain why Nero in Rome blamed Christians for the fire that burned most of Rome and why he, in response, crucified and burned many Christians in the city of Rome. And here's what he said. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, I don't know if he was sipping the scotch, I don't know what scotch means in this case. Maybe someone who does can tell me. To scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by the sentence of the procreator Pontius Tacitus, Roman historian, not writing from a Christian perspective, says not only that Jesus was killed, but who was in charge when Jesus was killed. And he is doing so to explain in only less than a hundred years how Christianity had gone from a tiny little group in Jerusalem to a large enough body of people in Rome that they could be blamed for something. Did the cross happen? Josephus and Tacitus say yes. They're not claiming to speak for God. They're speaking for themselves. Friends, if anything in the ancient world happened, we can be sure that the cross happened. Now, far more importantly, does what the Bible said about the cross 
happen? Did it happen? In our remaining time together, that's what we'll consider together. Janine Sage is going to come read for us from John 19. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of a Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture that says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Thank you. Would you thank Janine for reading for us? This is a heavy, heavy passage, and I approach it to you this morning with, uh, honestly, great intimidation. What can we say that would be sufficient about this most important moment? We've uh, prayed uh, for you that the Lord would impact you today through the hearing of His Word. Uh, If we were to summarize what John tells us about the death of Jesus, perhaps it could be put like this. 
King Jesus was crucified and therein fulfilled the Scriptures by accomplishing the work of salvation. That is the main thing John is wanting us to retain from this event. I'd like in our remaining time that we have together this morning to to expand and explain that idea. And to do so with you under uh, two simple headings, what and why. What happened? What was the crucifixion? And why did this happen? What's the significance of the fact that Jesus was crucified? We'll go in that order. First, just what? What was the crucifixion? Well, John, in one sense, just gives us the, the bare facts. Jesus carried his cross outside the city. Jesus was crucified on that cross. The soldiers divided up his garments, and he died. But a a brief, cold survey of the facts hardly does justice to the event itself, especially for people like us who are so far removed from crucifixions. We've been alive in the first century in a Roman-ruled area, we would have seen crucifixions. They were not uncommon. So I'd like to spend a few minutes together describing for you what would have happened. After Jesus had been beaten, likely beyond recognition, he had a crown of thorns placed upon his head. He was pronounced guilty And then Roman soldiers came with a crossbeam, a large piece of wood, likely weighing over 100 pounds. They stretched his arms out like this, and they put that crossbeam across his shoulders, and then roped his arms to it. And then in great mockery, Jesus was paraded through the streets of Jerusalem. Rome wanted everybody to know this is what happens to people who disobey. And so Jesus, who already was in horrible shape, was paraded up and down the streets. As in front of him would have been a, a Roman soldier carrying a, a placard. That placard announced the crime that the guilty was being killed for. So this sign said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And there would have been soldiers on the sides of Jesus mocking him as he walked through the streets. Eventually he made it just to the edge of the city and collapsed. He was no longer able to continue to carry his own cross. So as the other Gospels tell us, a onlooker was called in and he carried that crossbeam the rest of the way. When they reached Golgotha, which by the way, where that spot is believed to have been, there has been church building upon church building built for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And for, for nearly a millennia, a Muslim family has been in charge of locking and unlocking that building because Christians fight 
over who gets into the building first. What a disgusting testimony of a lack of unity. But that's for another day. So they brought Jesus to Golgotha, and they took that cross beam and nailed it to a vertical beam. And Jesus was forced to lay down, his arms stretched out. And in that spot, right under your wrist, large spikes were driven through. And Jesus was hoisted into the air as that cross slammed into the ground. He was stripped completely naked. And then his feet were pushed up just slightly. And more spikes were driven into his ankles. Now remember that by this point, Jesus' back had already been filleted. And so as he hung there on that cross, he was forced into such a position that in order to breathe, he had to push up, pull up, and scrape that ripped up back upon the wood. And that motion was repeated every time a breath had to be taken. It was not uncommon that this would last not just minutes or hours, but sometimes days. Because you see, what killed someone on the cross was not the pain, although that pain would have been absolutely horrible as you were forced to pull up right on that spike in your medial nerve, push up on those legs. But what would kill you eventually is you could no longer pull yourself up. Muscles would spasm and eventually just give out. And so you'd suffocate. Persians had invented crucifixion, but Rome had perfected it. They wanted everybody to know, with the utmost cruelty, if you disobey Rome, here's what happens. Jesus died of asphyxiation. Now, the physical agony of the cross is but a a small even tiny window into the far more serious, far more painful spiritual agony that Jesus faced. Because you see, as he hung there, he became the object of scorn. That brings us to our second question, why? Why the crucifixion? Well, ultimately, Jesus died on the cross simply to finish the work of salvation that the Father had sent him to do. But if we zoom in more closely on the passage that Janine read for us, then we see that John emphasizes three different aspects of Jesus' work, three different aspects of why he died. First, he died to fulfill the Scripture. Second, he died to bring about salvation. And finally, he died to set the pattern 
for all citizens of his kingdom. Let's consider each of those uh, together. Number one, why the cross? Well, to fulfill the scriptures. Now, if I didn't sort of geek out on you in the introduction, I'm going to do so right now. Spare me uh, five or six minutes to, to show you something rather nerdy, but that I think if you'll really contemplate it, you'll find absolutely amazing and immensely helpful in just your normal Bible reading. There are two verses in our passage that are actually quotations from the Old Testament. There's, there's several more things that are allusions, sort of a, a picture that isn't a quote. But there's two things that John went out of his way to say. This happened because the Old Testament said it was going to happen. Next week, if you join us and you want to geek out more, you'll find two more. So you have that to look forward to next Sunday. But look at verse 24. So they, this is the soldiers, said to one another, let us not tear it, referring to the the inner garment that Jesus would have been wearing. We don't have anything like this, really. The closest thing to it would be underwear, but it covered your whole body. So they wore an outer cloak, but then men would wear an inner tunic. It was made of a silky material that was one piece that went from shoulders down to your shins. So that's what he's talking about. Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, and here's the quote, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 18, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Second example, look down at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that All was now finished. Now notice the difference here between the soldiers and Jesus. The the soldiers didn't do this because they knew Scripture said it. God just providentially oversaw that. But Jesus, self-consciously aware that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, quoted a passage, again from Psalms, This one's from Psalm 69. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. That's Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. All right, Chuck. I made it through your introduction, but now I'm done. A couple of you want to nod off, and I get that. But give me three or four more minutes, okay? This is so cool. So what? What difference does it make that these two things happened because they had been written in the Old Testament they were going to happen? Well, at at one level, it's simply astonishing that two places in the Psalms foretold what would happen in the most 
odd little details of Jesus' death. That's really cool. King David wrote Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. He wrote both of those psalms sometime during the 10th century B.C. or B.C.E. So that's around a thousand years. A thousand years before these events happened. David, writing psalm, wrote of what would happen to Jesus. It's amazing. Friend, if you doubt the trustworthiness or the supernatural nature of the Bible, or if it's worth spending time in, let alone building your life on, let this be something that causes you to read and consider more closely, can I trust the Scriptures? There is nothing else ever written like this, that with precision, in the most weird circumstances, roughly a thousand years ahead of time, said this is going to happen, and it in fact did. So at one level, that's what John's doing. He's simply causing us to wonder and be amazed at the plan of God. Sometimes I hear uh, people say, in um, I think likely unintentional ways, that the cross is sort of plan B. It's the, the first thing God wanted for humanity didn't work out, and so then he sort of baked up something and did the best he could with the ingredients he had left. But the cross was always God's plan. And King David wrote of it. But even more than that, the second thing going on here that's of such significance is that these Old Testament references to Jesus not only should cause kind of wonder and amazement at the prophetic nature of them, but they interpret for us what the meaning of the death of Jesus is. So to say that a different way, let's just take the first reference, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by King David, who was ruler over the nation of Israel at its very height. He probably lived a half a mile from where Jesus would be later crucified. David was an imperfect but a good king. He used his influence and authority for the most part for the good of the people that were under his leadership. And in, in that way, he was an innocent sufferer. And yet, as an, an innocent sufferer, he found himself in a variety of circumstances in which he was fraught, in which he was overwhelmed, in which he was in agony, in which enemies surrounded him and were hunting him down, in which he sensed that death was near, in which he was mocked in his hardship. He had led people well, and yet even in that leading well, he didn't find the pathway of his leadership to be smooth. In fact, in a variety of circumstances, it appeared as though his enemies were going to win. King David was righteous yet oppressed, beaten down yet confident of his final vindication. 
by now, I hope the light bulbs are going bing, 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 bing. Because why is it that David wrote Psalm 22? David wrote Psalm 22 in order to explain why Jesus died on the cross. Jesus wrote Psalm 22 because David was a pre-enactment of Christ. David wrote Psalm 22 because he was the shadow and Jesus was the substance. And so when we look at the death of Christ, John doesn't actually explain in explicit detail. Here's one, two, three, four, five, six. Here are all the reasons Jesus died on the cross. But what he does do is he reaches back a thousand years and says, friends, your Bible all along has been ahead of time announcing for us what was going to happen and why. Now that is brain-exploding amazing. The soldiers unknowingly declared Jesus to be the true and better David. And then Jesus knowingly says, I thirst because he wanted for all time it to be recorded. I know I'm the one David was talking about. You want to know what this means? Go back and read David. Now, sometime I'd encourage you, even today, to take 10 minutes, 8 minutes, and read Psalm 22. It's only 31 verses. But watch what happens. David goes from, I am in complete, utter despair. It starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It gets worse, worse, worse. But then there's this moment in the psalm where things turn. And it ends with a declaration of victory and an announcement of praise. And so John's telling us, if you want to know what's up with Jesus and his strange getting nailed to a cross, understand that trajectory, anguish to victory. That's why this is quoted. Friends, if you find the Bible confusing, The key is to learn to read all the Bible through a Jesus lens because the whole Bible is about him. He is the center of the story. Now that brings us to the second reason for the cross. So we'll step out of nerddom back into non-nerddom. Why the cross? Well, the second reason Jesus died is to bring about salvation. Look with me at verse 30. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, I thir- he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Friend, when Jesus cried out, which again, imagine, he had to push and pull up in order to get a breath, let alone say anything, let alone cry out. So this took tremendous physical labor. When Jesus said, it's finished, what is that? Is this the broken, demoralized announcement of a failure? 
It's finished. I'm done. It's over. No. This is the victorious battle cry that it's over. I won. This is a declaration of victory. It is finished means I have completed what the Father sent me to do. The work of salvation is now fully complete, accomplished forever. Never again will there need to be another sacrifice. It is Jesus saying, I've reached the goal, I've attained the prize, I've finished the task. It is Jesus' victorious announcement that Satan is defeated, that sin does not win, that death has seen its final blow. It is finished are the best words you could ever hear. King Jesus crucified was crucified as the obedient, compassionate, holy, pure, complete man. He had fully obeyed the law in every way. And therefore, he was able to be a sufficient self-sacrifice in our place. Friends, many of us in the next several days, we'll go to work. Now, why will we go to work? Well, we'll go to work to make a positive contribution on society. We will go to work to not be bored. We will go to work to use the gifts and talents and skills and education that we've been blessed with by God. But really, we'll go to work to make money. We'll go to work on faith that if I do this work in accordance with the policies set forward by my company, then I will be given a wage. I will be given what I've earned. Friend, that's not the only wage that you and I are due. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 puts it this way. For the wages, the just payment, what we have earned, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, the thing that you and I have earned with our lives before God is spiritual death ending in physical death. And yet Jesus died in order that we might have life. It is finished is the announcement that Jesus takes your wage, Christian, and gives you his life. Isn't that the most incredible thing? The wage that you and I earn in our sin has been put upon Jesus, and that is actually what brought about his death, was becoming the object of the wrath of God in order that we wouldn't get that payment, but we would be given his life. Now, to put that a different way, go back with me all the way to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. What do we find? Well, we, we find that a good God made a good world, and he put good people in a good garden, and he gave them good jobs. And there's this pattern to the story. God saw what he made, and it's good. God saw what he made, and it's good. And this goodness between Adam and Eve and between 
Adam and Eve and their good relationship with God is pictured, it's symbolized in their nakedness. So they had no clothes on, but that's not like the emperor has no clothes. That is, they were pure. And they enjoyed a wonderful life. But it didn't take long to get to Genesis 3, just like it doesn't take long for you and me to get to Genesis 3. They stumbled into sin and therefore fell from their place of innocence. They came under the curse that fractured and broke their relationship, not only with each other, not only with the created order, but with God. And everything fell apart. But do you know what God did? There's this weird little detail. It says that they hid in their nakedness because they were ashamed. But what did God do? Well, he clothed them. Those little tiny things in the Bible that seem like the author was sipping on something. Maybe that scotch we talked about earlier. Are actually some of the most amazing technicolor details. You see, Jesus is being foretold in Genesis chapter 3. Here's what I mean. When Adam and Eve sinned, God came to them, yes, with punishment, consequence, but also with grace. His clothing them was the bestowal of grace and kindness on people who did not deserve it. And so, in other words, their shame, their guilt... God initiated a covering for them. I'm thankful all of you have coverings in that sense. But here's the reason I bring this up. Jesus also found himself naked. And yet the great difference between Adam and Eve and Jesus is that no covering was given to him. God the Father did not come to Jesus and say, here, in my grace and mercy and kindness, I will cover your nakedness with my grace. Instead, he left him in guilt, shame, and agony. Why? So that you could receive the infinite clothing of grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that your guilt and shame could be covered forever. Now, I know I'm the preacher, but that will preach. 500 years ago, a pastor said of this text, Christ was stripped of his garments that he might clothe us with his righteousness. His naked body was exposed to the insults of men that we may appear in glory before the judgment seat. Praise God for the gospel. Christian, your guilt and shame is no more. It, it has been clothed. It is covered with the grace and mercy and loving kindness of God. Irrespective 
of what you may do in the future that is against God. You are clothed and covered with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need never fear standing before him in guilt and shame, for he has clothed you in Jesus. Finally, the third reason for the cross, according to John 19, is to set the pattern. Christian, in this sense, the cross isn't something just done for us, but it is continually something that is to be done to us. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Maybe that's just a one-off. Maybe Jesus was just in a bad mood that day. No, Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't advocating that you somehow make someone so ferociously angry that they will nail you to a cross and you will die. No, he's symbolically saying the pathway for the Christian is only one. And it is a single track. And it has been walked first by Jesus. And now if we would follow him, we must walk the same path. We must live not for ourselves, but for him. We must rebuke and turn from pride and embrace humility. We must set aside our own aspirations and follow hard after Christ. And Jesus was so serious about that. He said, if you're not willing to do that, you don't get me. John, in an interesting way, pulls out that analogy Again, in the details. There's four soldiers. One, two, three, four. The text goes out of its way to tell us that. Imagine there's a naked body agonizing, screaming out in pain, gasping for every breath. And what are you doing? You're throwing dice at his feet for his clothes. What a repugnant picture of humanity. What a picture of you and I apart from God. But there's another group of four. Did you catch it? Not four soldiers, not four men, but four women. These women were followers of Jesus, including his mother. These women are a pious example of longingly looking upon Jesus. There's a fight in the kitchen. Of longingly looking upon Jesus. John's saying, which is it going to be? Soldiers living in sin? Powerless? Nobodies? 
who in fact had everything. Brothers and sisters, will we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus? What will that look like? High schoolers, tomorrow at school, it will look like you going to the person in your class that everyone hates, everyone mocks, but you take an interest, you smile. It will look like husbands. You not using your position of leadership in order to be harsh and boss around your bride, but to be the first in the home to open your Bible and read it together and ask her, how is it with you and Jesus? What can I do this week to encourage you in Him? It will look like single adults, part of Church on Mill, who give up your time to live in consistent community among God's people in order to be reaffirmed again and again and again that though you may feel like it at times, you are in fact not alone. That there is a family for you to be part of. Friends, it will look like just living out the life of Christ in the stuff of everyday life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote of it this way. I'll close with this. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's not be people of cheap grace. Let's work hard together to be people of the real thing. For that is why Jesus died. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this most powerful text. Would you please take these words now and use them for your glory? We ask that people here this morning who are not saved, that you would open their eyes and heart, expand their minds, Help them to see themselves rightly and you truly and to respond to you. We pray that you would save some even now. God, we also pray that you would help us as brothers and sisters to love you well by loving each other sacrificially. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a heavy passage.